0: Welcome to the Creatives with AI Podcast. I'm your host, David, and this is a show where we share insights about the future of artificial intelligence and how it will affect the lives of people working in the creative industries. On today's show, we chat with Professor Steve Watson from the University of Cambridge, where we touch on the transformative role of AI in education, particularly its potential to personalize learning, promote inclusivity, and assist teachers in creating better test questions and designing curriculum. We also talk about the changing dynamics between teachers and students in the era of digital revolution and the debates on the purpose and form of education. We talk about the potential of AI and decision-making within the educational sphere, how it supports diverse teaching and learning styles and fostering critical thinking, and we touch on how AI tools like Grammarly are transforming communication. Steve Watson, an associate professor at the University of Cambridge, focuses on large language model AI's impact on education. He co-chairs the faculty's Knowledge Power Politics Research Cluster and serves as associate executive editor for the Cambridge Journal of Education. He uses methodologies like social systems theory and phenomenology to explore media, policy, education, and teacher professional training. His degrees in engineering and educational studies are from Cambridge, The Open University, and Nottingham. He holds a postgraduate certificate of education from Sheffield, worked in retail, telecommunications, and taught mathematics before academia. As always, links to Stephen's profile and social media will be in the show notes on our website at creativeswith.ai. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you enjoy this educational conversation with Stephen. So, Steve, good morning. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, David. How are you doing? Um, Pretty good. Thank
1: you. It's good to be here.
0: So I've done the credentials and sort of your formal, you know, kind of qualifications and stuff like that in the intro, but maybe if you just took a minute or two to tell the listeners what you're currently working on and then we'll sort of take it from there.
1: Okay. Well, I suppose I could be best described as an interdisciplinary researcher. So I work in a faculty of education and I entered into that through being a teacher doing many things around educational research in recent years have been looking at things like social media and effects on policy making so a very across a range of sociological issues and then more recently my preoccupation has been with the impact of chat gpt and uh, at one level i kind of might understand myself as uh, You know, like many academics wanting to seize an opportunity, I suppose there's an element of that. But also, this uh, is very interesting to me because it's a long-time interest in how human beings relate to machines of whatever kind and in an educational context. So, at the moment, my research is preoccupied with this. It's around understanding how people make sense of and make use of things like ChatGPT and their work and their lives, uh, its impact on education and how we might deal with that as a society, and what that means for a society. Uh, I've been immersed in that since the release of ChatGPT uh, on the interface that came out late November last year.
0: I came across you, some, I have no idea how I came across an article in the Faculty of Education News from Cambridge University, but I did. <laughs> and, uh I think that was the one that was written by, um, what's his name, Tom?
1: Tom Kirk, yeah.
0: So that was what really piqued my interest in the beginning and, and what made me want to talk to you because I thought you had some really interesting thoughts about you know sort of the direction that it was taking. So I guess my first question is, what is the current state of play? You work at Cambridge University, mm. so you're at university level. But what's your, what's your view on where we are with education and AI at the minute?
1: Yeah, I, I think this has uh, been very challenging for education and uh, businesses alike in responding to this. Uh, and I think one of the there's several issues. First of all, is about user uptake—the amount of people that actually started using this. The anxiety about what it is and what it's likely to do meant that the, you know organizations, including Cambridge University, have, have very limited capacity to make. Far reaching decisions about regu- how it's regulated, but have had to regulate in some way because it's important to maintain the integrity of the institution. But it's left the situation where we've got many, many users who are figuring out and understanding and seeing possibilities and also the limitations and things to be concerned about in this technology who are very anxious about using it. So the moment. There's possibilities of a great deal of innovation, but at the moment, it's kind of regular, the, the limits of understanding of the technology and its regulation are just lagging things behind a little bit. But I think, first of all, to add to that, it's the role of how we've understood this in the media has also raised a lot of attention. And I think the story broke, really, in a, a lot of collective broadcast and print media was that this would create an alien intelligence that was among us. And this would do very good things or really very bad things. And the motivation really was to try and get some academic voices into this to say, look, it's neither really, really good or really, really bad as a technology. It could get used in good or bad ways, but we need to start understanding what it is and what it can do and how people are using it. And that was really the setup for what we did there, which, had, which has had a lot of interest.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think it's interesting what you said, because in my mind, it always boils down to people. People will be the problem. I think the AI itself is, like you said, it's, it's just a technology. It's a yeah. tool like any other tool. Well, it's not like any other tool, but it is a tool at the end of the day. And I yeah. think it can be used for nefarious purposes or it can be used for good. And I think there's opportunity for both. I think what's interesting is that a lot of the educators I've spoken to are worried on one level, but I think in kind of the lower, it seems to be the lower grades, like secondary school, they're quite worried because those are the kids who, you know, will go out and try and do work with it and maybe pass it off as their work. Primary school students don't really have access to it and the things that they learn. I think AI could really assist Mm. with them. In, in in with some of those students, and and I know that's one of your things we yeah. talk about. But mostly, and broadly speaking, educators seem quite positive. What areas do you think that it could be particularly helpful in an educational setting?
1: Yeah, I I think that's right. I mean, I was talking to the Hills Road Sixth Form College. I did a, a session there with all the teachers there, and while there were, of course, pockets of people who were kind of deeply concerned and were worried about the technology overwhelmingly teachers were seeing lots of opportunities and i think that is across both teaching learning but also the administration of their work in helping uh, get some of the documentation that they need in the right forms very quickly it's very capable of doing that but in terms of teaching i think one of the possibilities here i'd say is in terms of personalization or that's where it's seen is how a, an individual's way of thinking about the world can be connected up with other ways of thinking about the world. So I mean at one level, we often see knowledge as a single authority, and that's how it's presented. but we don't want, really want to move to a position where we just say any knowledge is the same, but to see how alternative perspectives are constructed and whats what might be the basis of them, uh, seems an important direction in personalising learn, learning and inclusivity. So aspects of that are really around summarizing and explaining text in different ways or helping a student write and develop their own ideas and structure their own ideas for different audiences and for different contexts. So for that, I think it's a a huge potential tool for inclusion. I think the real limit at the moment, and this has really been the barrier for me at the moment in wanting to develop things in Cambridge, is just Access to resources because it needs a strategic approach across education. And I think uh, in the UK context, a lack of public investment is making it difficult to make use of the technology. And also, that is also includes anticipating the potential problems and trying to understand those and understand how we're going to deal with those when they arise. And I mean, I suppose if we think in a globally competitive world, then, uh, you know, those states are are going to develop it strategically will have an advantage because this is going to be part of the world or part of the world but not necessarily a way we might comprehend or understand at the moment i think
0: that's the worry from a lot of people it's interesting you mentioned structuring content and written content in particular and arguments that's one of the things that i find it most useful for is summarizing information and you do have to be careful because it does have a tendency sometimes to to make things up. But by and large, if you, if you ask it about a well-established topic yep. and ask it to summarize something, like you said, it can give you it can give you all sorts of different ways to present that information. And I find it extremely helpful to do that and also to help write outlines. I don't like to use it in practice for like professional work that I need to do. Yeah. But I do find it really helpful to say, I'm, you know, I need to do a paper about X. Yeah. Can you help me? What, what topic should I mention? Yeah. And it'll give you a fantastic outline of a document. And sometimes it comes up with things that I would have never thought of myself. And yeah, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. genius. I, I didn't think about that. Yeah. And it, it gives me a good thing to work from. And then, and then what I'll do is I'll go and write my content myself and then yeah. I'll put it back in and say, hey, can you make this better? Yeah, I think I
1: think that, and, and I think that what you highlight is the way in which young learners can even learn to use it and to understand what it's doing, rather than starting with the impression. I think a lot of people are because of the media hype about it. They wanted a story, so it's fair enough that it is a kind of this. It's, it is an intelligence, but if young children uh, are understanding that what it is 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 it's a machine that will feed back automatically. In different ways, um, rather than as a source of information, as a, as a source of information, then I think it's more powerful in the way you're saying. You know, I was talking with a group about thinking about using it in creative writing yesterday, and um, they were talking about using metaphors. And one of the ways of thinking about improving use of metaphors is to say uh, in this text there's a metaphor or identify a metaphor in this text to suggest five alternative metaphors and uh, rewrite those with those metaphors, rewrite this text with those metaphors in. And you can even do a next level and say, uh, in what ways do these metaphors change the meaning of the text? So you can have quite a feedback loop in kind of uh, fairly detailed pieces of writing, crash the writing, but also understand try and understand what you mean by things in relation to uh meanings that have existing text. And those are quite valuable in terms of thinking about. But you know, I, I it occurs to me here, this is all sounds like we're moving into a very different world of education. And I think that's what we're anticipating is this shift from knowledge to meaning. As I like to uh that's a bit of a teaser because there's a lot of kind of
0: conceptual thinking under that at the moment. <laughs> On the side of my screen here, I have wither knowledge, wither meaning, which is something that you yeah did before. So, just for people listening, I'll share links and everything, and I'll have in the show notes. I'll have links to to the articles and things that you've written on this. So, uh, which you shared with me very kindly before we before yeah. we had a chat, and I have read through that. So, ironically, I literally have that on my screen at the minute. Yes, I've seen recently a few things, and and I might specifically ask you about a couple of topics, but. One of the things that I saw around education that I thought was quite interesting is in actually assisting teachers in writing better tests and better yeah. test questions. What, what are your thoughts on that?
1: I think it's an area that can be developed um, very easily, I think, because I was just thinking in terms of, I mean, we'll stick to essay questions, so let's stick to humanities and social sciences. Potentially, we can think about that in STEM subjects, but there's slightly different challenge there. But for instance, in setting some questions about sociology of education this year, I can put a series of bullet points about the topic that I was lecturing on or even, um, you know, a section of theory and say, suggest five alternative essay questions uh, that would be suitable for second-year undergraduates at Cambridge, perhaps. Uh, and then, again, like you were saying, it mm, a bit of number one Some are three, and the rest sounds a bit silly, but it gives me a little bit further to go with that. But it also can then suggest, you know, suggest an outline to answer it. So you can start to develop a kind of, you know, ways of thinking about assessment within that. So uh, yes, it it can be very valuable. I'll just say briefly about STEM. Uh, I mean, of course, in with mathematical problems, it will answer them. A perfectly in form, but that' actually they may be incorrect because it's it's just looking at the patterns, so you can generate problems, but they're not you might have to look at the answers in a different way. It's very useful for explaining concepts in mathematics, so you know you say, explain what addition means and why is it important you know yeah. and and that kind of thing so. Yeah, it's it's again it's in that feedback approach, I think, really, is and 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 understanding how to use it in that way.
0: I wonder what it says about quantum. Explain quantum. Uh, um, Because nobody seems to be able to explain quantum, which makes me laugh. When you get
1: close to paradox, whether that be through irony or sarcasm or through quantum mechanics, or just plain old paradoxical, you know, liar's paradox. Large language models like Chat gpt all go a bit wrong. It's like, it's like entering a black hole for them. Whereas consciousness, and this is uh, a reassuring Turing test, consciousness will always make meaning within, with, with, when confronted with a paradox. We'll go, so that side of the paradox will, make, will, will just ignore the other side of it just for the purposes, and that's what we do with consciousness. But for a machine, because it doesn't have that consciousness, that's just it leads to very random results which is an interesting it's so it's an interesting question
0: what was the other one so you touched on it as well about you know if you're trying to design a curriculum for a course you're trying to design your lectures it so do you actually use it yourself to to support in that already
1: increasingly i support it in many ways so i mean i I, it's i always start from the as much information as i can give it you know uh, as much information i can uh that will be managed with, by the tokenization, i.e. its capacity to deal with text, as I can give it with examples and any constraints. And then it might involve a few iterations in which I take parts of it and go away for a day or so and think about the thing and go, I want that, that, and that. So it's always with human intervention. And it's, it, this automata- automation is, it, is only the fact that it automatically responds to you. Uh, but it might always not be the most useful thing. (laughs) So how to get it to do more useful things for you is nothing more than an art, really, Uh, I think, in so many different contexts. And I think people will develop so specific expertise in this that they'll be able to make a large language model like GPT-4 work for them extremely well. So the answer is yes. And I think part of this is part of my research is to see what sort of thing it will do. and my option is just to use like the chatbot gpt for paid one because it's probably the most powerful model available and i just want to see it in the raw really i don't want it mediated by an application and i want to see how the chat's working and and people who were exploring a few years ago with gp2 told me that was a really interesting process because it just showed all the errors and everything as well when that cycled around so you got to see a much more under the bonnet and it, and it's like any tool whether you are a stonemason or whether you are a graphic designer or an anime designer you know you need to learn how to use your media and you know uh, uh, if you want to be creative with it but uh, i mean even then to get it to work for you you need to kind of develop an understanding of the the art of this it's it's similar to the art of writing but in a new kind of way
0: it is and it's interesting that you mentioned that as well because I think we talked about on on our intro call, and I still can't find the original article, but there was one of the professors at Wharton at the business school. They now teach a class in their MBA program on prompt writing mm. um for AI. And one of the things that he talked about in the article is is that he's learned through starting this class and working through it with, you know, several students that actually you need Generally, you need to prompt it five times to get to the a, a yeah. very specific answer that's actually useful. So, yeah. you start off with a "Hey, I want to talk about X." Then it starts to it starts to build a thread. Yeah, and so it will come back and it'll give you a summary. Yeah, and then you say, "That's great. I'd like to know more about why." Yeah, and then you just keep going and you keep specifying more and more and more detail about what it is that you actually want. Yeah. And as you go through that iterative process, yeah, yeah. it takes about five times.
1: Yeah, I think that's right.
0: You know, that, that prompt writing piece, you're absolutely right. You know, everybody's going to have to, I mean, I'm already much better at it. Than me I was me too. Beginning.
1: And, 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 you know, uh, and uh, yeah, I think that's the, that's the, that's the biggest thing to learn. I mean, my first thing, my first prompts are like, so what's the meaning of life? Question mark.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Please tell me it tells you 42.
1: Yeah. I, I don't even remember, but it was like, I, it was this issue of understanding what it could do, really. And I, I think that is the iterative. And I liked it. I, what I was thinking there is the times that um, when I'm working on something and you find yourself, you get in the zone with it, you know, so you know you're kind of in tune with a series of prompts and responses and it, it you know, it's feeling productive and it's developing something. Your ideas are being given some structure and a form. And that feels very satisfying creatively. And then sometimes you just—it's just you know—it's an idiot box. <laughs> it's just, yeah. and you're an idiot box, and you just can't work it. And it's yeah. time to go away and get a pencil and paper out, or even just go and you know go for a walk or something. Because, uh, and yeah. it's true of any technology in that. And I, I think this is why you know the 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 reality of this in many ways. Uh, is much more mundane than we possibly imagine i mean uh, that's of course like the stone axe was uh, you know an original piece of technology and of course we could do that to help with many things including knocking competitors over the head with it but it it took time to learn and to make you know to make sense of it in society and how we should use it and how it should be regulated and it's the same here it it's a tool that serves society and it can be used, it will be used for doing bad things for constructing information, uh, you know, information that that deliberately misleads and exploits.
0: It's interesting as well. So our very first guest that we had on the podcast is a gentleman named Wo, Wo King, and he's down in Devon and he, he builds AI tools to support disadvantaged families Amazing. and, and yeah. things like that. And it, it helps them write letters and and gives basic information and and answers questions and one of the things that he's found from offering training programs so he does like a weekly training program i think for local people if they want to come in and learn about it that's amazing is he said that old people and very young people actually use it really well yeah because they just talk to it naturally
1: yeah yeah okay, okay they just ask
0: it questions and it gives better answers and they they don't get caught up in so much of the detail of it where those of us who are kind of mid-career,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: we were so involved in how, you know, we have to be very specific in what we do and we have to be, yeah. most of the time, we're, we're in this environment where we always have to be correct. And so yeah, we almost that's right. overcorrect yeah. when we ask AI questions. And so we want this super specific yeah. answer and it has to be 100% correct all the time. Whereas other people... They just think, oh, this is cool. I want to know, you know, how do I write a letter to my landlord telling them? Yeah, that I to yeah, manage.
1: completely. And it, is, and it is that more mundane. It's interesting you would describe as middle mid-career. So, I mean, it's kind of this stage of adulthood that we carry the responsibility for knowledge. And what's going to be correct or not we you know we you know we're heads of families we're teachers you know we oh well heads of family you know we have a you know senior role in families uh along with partners or not about decisions and i think the crisis that you know the the thing that we many of us have grown up through this generation is the crisis of knowledge something that we carry the mantle for the truth amongst fake news now where does the truth lie and uh so it's interesting. It, it's likely that it comes out next by experience. We want it for so those of us that think it's important, want to engage with this new technology, but also link that to what was important and significant about knowledge. And there is a a a, a gray area between that that I think young people uh, tend to get much more easily because for them. Life is all about how them as they as an individual make meaning, and how that and and the and how to communicate with other young people who are making different kinds of uh, very individualized views of themselves. Whereas the the middle age in uh, liberal democracies are wrestling with with the responsibility of it all. Oh dear!
0: <laughs> <laughs> you just blown my mind because I never really. I I mean. As adults and with, you know, leaders yeah. of families, like he said, I've never really thought about it as being in charge and responsible for the passing of well, knowledge for society. That's um,
1: I have to face up to it now and again, but uh, that's the reality of it all. That's, that's uh, you know, um,
0: oh. uh, whether... <laughs> so Yes, yeah, sorry. Obviously, as an educator, you'll be much more in tune with that. But yeah, I'd, I'd never quite thought about it in those words. So thanks for that. Yeah. Um, that's... <laughs> That's good. That'll give me something to reflect on um, while I'm on the treadmill next time. Let's talk about sort of the elephant in the room. Yeah. Which is, where do you see over? I mean, you know, I like to talk about the next five to 10 year window because I think things are drastically going to change in that time. Yeah. AI is very clunky. It's still a bit slow, doesn't always do what you want. When we spoke the first time was after the Sam Altman thing. And one of the things that he mentioned when, when he was talking was that what he thinks is we're going to end up in a federated type system, mm-hmm. which means you're going to have one AI that controls the conversation, yeah, but then reaches out to specialist APIs for specialist yeah, topics. So it yeah. might go to Wolfram Alpha for mathematics. Well, I think or that's it might right. might go to yeah. a, a specialist one. And if you want to play chess, it'll go to a chess one. Or yeah. But where do you see the risks coming? Yeah,
1: I, well, I think that, of course, the The major ones are, you know, how this can be used imaginatively to exploit or kind of uh, uh, mislead, I think, primarily uh, because it's, you know, it's very effective at automating the processes that might be used for benefit, but it could proliferate that. Um, And I think it's incumbent really on kind of education to try and very quickly get people a chance to understand what this technology is. And that's an imperative in that. So, I mean, there are issues around, I mean, they're, they're important, but they're kind of, I would say, less existential. It's such a thing as, you know, like data privacy and, you know, things like biases uh, in the, in the data sets. They're things that are ongoing conversations about how and what we use it for and and what it means to. Train a large language model in contrast to kind of information retrieval systems that we use to write search engines. So, I mean, the, the, it's probable that out if it's read some of your personal details at any time that will happen to be public, that it could reconstruct those in a in a reply to somebody. But the possibility of that is so remote; it, it seems impossible. So, the, those are the. I think those. Yes, for now. For now. I mean, it, you know, it, 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 you know, whenever you have the highly impossible, it becomes a probable. So uh, it could do, you know. But there are questions to ask about, and this I think is how we proceed it with with a, a deal of caution. Which is, I think, I think a lot of the kind of AI leaders are really kind of saying that in many ways. I think some are more extreme in their saying, just halt it and. Um, even some of those that are kind of very pro and very successful with it are saying, yeah, we have to go with caution, but the guys who are saying halt it have just missed the bus, that's all. I think the immediate problem is just people having the time and space to think about it and think about how they could put it to use in their work and in their lives is, and, and finding the resources to help them with that is, the, is probably the immediate challenge. We have, uh, and that is going to exist for some time because to really get most out of this technology, you have to spend spend quite a bit of time with it. I think you've got to work with it over a period of time and quite intensely on in different ways to start to understand it. Now, you know, if I'm in a luxurious position where you know I can pursue that because it's my job to research technology and education, well, it is now. Do you think it'll ever replace teachers? No, I just I think they're going to be a key part of this. But the relationship between teachers and students changes all the time. And I mean, this trajectory from the earliest schools where the teacher was the single authority of all texts and all interpretation of all texts to this twentieth and twenty-first century transition to a very porous classroom in which the teacher is just but one voice in a big drop of information and how then to deal with that. You know, and it's it's divided education between those say who just like rebuild the walls and make them much stronger and make the teacher responsible for being the authority on interpretation of all texts, to others who are saying, well, just kick the walls down. Well, I think the answer is somewhere in between, and that's the pragmatic space in which, having been a teacher, that we exist, we try and keep up. And try and include things in the classroom and take in different boy- viewpoints and perspectives, but also try and maintain that connection with existing bodies of knowledge and how we understand that. But that's a dynamic process, in, and and because the young people, you've got that contradiction that they're young and developing, and we're trying to help them develop to be individuals and autonomous individuals. At the same time, we're also protecting them in that process as well. So, but. In many respects, they're ahead and behind because of that. So, education, as always, is is the site of many contradictions that we solve by the practices of teaching that maintain a level of continuity. So, classrooms look a bit the same as they did in the 16th century, really, but with more gadgets.
0: How long have you actually been teaching, like actively, kind of working with students in a in a in an educate like a classroom setting? Since 2000. Okay, so that's a that's a really good window the next question which is how have you already seen education change from then until now yeah because i imagine in the 2000s that was still mobile phones didn't exist in the yeah. early 2000s i think the iphone came out about 2004 yeah. so that was a very different and i'm old enough to remember before computers yeah. at all. we didn't have any we didn't even have computers in school when i was in school but yeah how have you seen it change because obviously there will have been a massive change in students and, the, yeah, way you completely. Teach students and yeah. the way you interact with them just yeah. because of the technology that's available. Because yeah. I guess students now come to class with, lap- with laptops and, yeah. and mobiles and everything. So I'm interested to see what are your thoughts on sort of what it was like then versus what it is now.
1: I, I think the one thing I'd observe, even though media and technology has changed dramatically on the outside, is the remarkable continuity. So if we were to step into a mass classroom in 2000, it wouldn't look so different from many classrooms in, in 2023, but there has been a lot of changes, you know. So at that time, there was just probably the calculator and, uh, you know, a few computer, well, there's certainly a few computer rounds, but they weren't heavily uh, integrated into education. Then came the interactive whiteboard and they, they were huge. And and so these become features of education rather than directly inf- influenced it. But education responded by negotiating a way of integrating these into what they already have. So, you know, the, the laptop becomes a supporting technology with various bits of application. The, the, you know, the interactive whiteboard effectively is an electronic blackboard, which sometimes isn't as good as a blackboard, especially if the sun's low on an afternoon in the winter. But also they opened up the possibility of kind of sharing multimedia and multimedia presentations. So it's the continuity in relation to these rather than the fundamental changes to pedagogy. Uh, but th- that doesn't admit there's a lot of negotiation that goes on in how that happens and how students are in that and how devices are accepted and included in that. But it, it it's always at the periphery and being regulated in rather than saying, you know, we fully embrace this technology, that's quite rare. And, you know, that, that's just a long feature of education about how it maintains some kind of integrity by reference to what it already does. And it's interesting how teachers learn to be a teacher in that. You be, it's better becoming that community that's constantly deciding what it, how it does things on the basis of how it already does things, which is, is, is its, you know, continu- continuous thread. But there are always disruptors to that. You know, there are always people that change that and do things differently. Uh, but I think the most, the most uh, extraordinary feature is really how public polarized debates about what education should be has as become an extraordinary feature as if it's, it can be reduced to some very simple arguments like that.
0: That's my next question. I guess I'm curious, are the students, do you feel less or more prepared now than they yeah. used to be? considering that they have technology so yeah you know we don't who was it that said if was it einstein or someone that said they don't remember anything if they can write it down
1: yeah there was Uh, someone really
0: famous who you know who talked about that and he's like well if i don't that i write everything down so i don't have to remember it so i can think about other things
1: yeah i mean the, the the most important feature of memory is the capacity to forget because it is a highly selective thing memory um but uh, that being said, I think uh, first of all, I answer your question. I think it, uh, students' preparation for university have changed in relation to ship to how they use technology in both, you know, progressing through education and supporting their learning at university and understanding the the social environment they're in. So that's a different kind of preparation. But our, our, the other observation I often make is curricular in all phases of education. Lag uh, uh, some number of years behind the world we live in. What we're teaching for in a curricula is usually a construct of a series of decisions that were fought over a number of years before. Uh, should we say maybe up to 50 years? And because then they're highly contested, it's very difficult to change those. And I think we probably have to accept that delay about education and think about how we make it respons- responsive in spite of that, uh, because it's how then, and it becomes apparent in in, in the release of ChatGPT and, and people who uh, see the opportunities in education, there's some big questions about what education is for. And I think this thing about memory and memorizing. So, you know, in the traditions of education, when there's a single authority around the text, the memorization of that text is an awfully successful way of, an awfully plausible way of, Measuring the success in understanding and recalling that text, uh, but it, when you've got multiple perspectives to make sense of, it does become a much more noisy world in you, which you not only, you've got to understand the basis on which you why am I memorizing that and why am making that selection in distinct. So you've got to have a, a kind of critical perspective on your own selection. but if you do that all the time it's it's, it's not a good place to be. so you have to get on with your life as well. I just said. So, so uh, yes, I think memory remains important, but uh, what clouds that is, you know, the fact that it is so noisy now in the context of what students might have to learn. And I think that's why it's sympathetic. I'm sympathetic to people say, so, well, let's narrow it down a bit. If that's a kind of scaffolding way, and just limit and encourage them to see the practices of memorising stuff to do a thing also be aware that the world they have to live in will be very dynamic and changing. And they have to be responsive to the uh, changing uh, understanding of what they do and what they need to know about what they do. But how also that has an impact on who they are as well. So these are very complex issues for
0: education to contemplate. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. I think there's a perception that at the minute, a lot of education, particularly like secondary and and probably university level education is taught simply to ensure that the country x country it doesn't have to just be the uk but this is every country in the world performs well yeah. on the international rankings yeah and it's not it's not particularly what the students need to be taught it's sure. they're taught what what's tested on and yep. you know what's ranked and i think like you said it's it's lagging fifty. Maybe seventy-five. Yeah, well, yeah, years. yeah. Oh, um, so I'm glad you in- think I'm being generous <laughs> there.
1: Cause I was saying in front of educators, I sometimes think that might be seem sounds as if I'm saying education is so conservative. But I, I, I agree, it lags along. You know, there's things in there you think, why? You know.
0: I think where AI comes in, and this is something, you know, that that I think if you if you listen to the conversation and what you've been saying, I think really what you're saying overall is that AI is giving us a really good opportunity to maybe accelerate and make some of those jobs easier like it it might help you save a lot of time in grading yeah so you're not spending nights and weekends grading papers you can actually get some assistance in the grading so that actually frees you up to think more about what you should be telling students
1: i think that's right i completely agree with that you know but it but that level just raises the game for everyone doesn't it you know so then you Then you spend your evenings designing great prompts to help you or do your work.
0: (laughs) Yes, yeah, (laughs) and
1: you know, and students are designing great prompts. So you know, I I think that's right. But it it does address those problems because we're operating a a much more reflexive level about who we are and how we make sense of selves in society. And who knows where that will take us? But it it solves it solves the, the problems we have now of just this kind of hyper level of in in well it doesn't solve the problem of hyper individualization it just is a way of making that manageable we want everything everything is increasingly personalized for good or for bad and that seems a progress forward you know whether we want we want very personalized products very personalized things on the internet when we select we want it to reflect who we are and who we are when we're living our best lives
0: there's a danger in that as well, you know. It's the, it's the bubble that if you stay too much in your bubble, that you're not challenged yeah. with other ideas, and and this is something that I think a lot of people see happening at the minute. Yes, if you look at places like Twitter and other social media platforms, you might, you know, there Twitter is perceived as being yeah. sort of you know liberal and and kind of left wing, whereas you've got other platforms that are right wing. Yeah. People start dividing themselves and, and they don't expose themselves to those counter arguments, which is what universities about are supposed to be, isn't it It's about
1: yeah, I think it, I think it is, and one of the things that you know just talking to one or two peace educators and people thinking around you know using uh, chat GPT to support and kind of mental health you know is how it, you might reflect on your interpretation, other people's interpretations to realise that they might be you might be contradictory to them, but they might have good reasons for saying the things that they say. Uh, But you can always ask them not to say them to you. And so that's a very hopeful world. I think I think the other point we kind of glossed we went fast over and you might want to revisit that is about the issue around Standardisation and PISA and international comparisons uh, and how that influences
0: education. I mean, I think we could probably do an entire podcast on just that.
1: We we could. It's, I mean, it's interesting. It is, it is interesting. I mean, but there's, there's a whole cycle of problems here in in that the the state or the government have to make decisions about what to do in education, and it's really impossible to know whether it's going to be a good thing or a bad thing, you know, you might say, well, it's good increased results, but that doesn't isn't a proxy for a better society. So it's so the comparison becomes a way of importing and exporting practices to wait to support political decision making, to give it some public legitimacy, even though that's very faint. But we have to think of different ways in which we might make decisions about education that are a bit more holistic and reflect, you know, sort of global, but as well as the needs of communities which schools primarily help with in many ways, you know, how it connects a community and experiences in a community with huge global issues. So that's a huge, huge demand. And, I, you know, I'm not always sympathetic to politicians, but it's a hugely, hugely demanding situation. You can see how then uh, the discourse of PISA uh, you know, kind of influences these things and also can, can then be used to support different approaches to education. Um, so, uh, yes, we could talk about that at a at, at greater length.
0: And I guess the other side is that having worked with public sector a little bit myself, I also know that you can't please any of the people any of the time. So coming to some sort of an agreement, if we did say, we need to change education. It's not fit for purpose for the modern world. Yeah, We're 50 75 years behind. The trying to get anybody to agree on oh, what completely. we need to do would be yeah. nearly impossible. Yeah. But I think I, I do think that over time it's going to it's going to free up students and teachers as well uh, yeah. to maybe address some other topics like maybe talk a little bit more about mental health. Maybe talk yeah, a little Yeah, yeah, I think
1: about,
0: so. It's it's the critical thinking. I know some yeah. schools are already teaching classes on how to research information that they see on the internet to try and understand if it's real or not. And I think with the addition of AI into the mix, we're going to have to maybe introduce more of that so that maybe again, not in primary school, but maybe as kids get into secondary school or or for people in the US like high school, when they're that sort of age, I think it's going to be important to start introducing how to research how to understand how to critically think
1: yeah and i mean i think i you know th- there's there's various terms you know that are much more holistic transdisciplinary uh systems thinking to what it is to be an in- individual subject in modern society and how to make sense of that <laughs> and one of the ways we've approached it is really through disciplinary knowledge around psychology, sociology, anthropology, philosophy. But you can't, for instance, the, the one thing that I, I was continue to work on is the, like, the problems of the distinction between psychology and sociology from this perspective, is the, the distinction between the individual and collective and uh, how you fit in. What are you in, a, in, in terms of what's your part in a whole and how is it possible to be that part? And what does that mean in society and how you make sense of that? So you can't just look at that from my own individual thoughts because they're always connected to what's going on in society and around, around you and being influenced by that. So it's how do you think beyond that and think about how everything else is um, organized around that uh, in the society you live at and how to, to cope with that and remain shall we say healthy uh or cope with ill health or cope with the things that come along and to try and assess in very uh non-simplistic terms what might be uh a, a, an appropriate decision on bigger issues but it's i mean all of those just we end up with a lot more kind of nuanced in i think the 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 approach you know while we now accept that consensus as you say is unlikely and and that's how ha- you know affected politics quite dramatically how we deal with contradiction is is usually through trying to work out shared problems that need solving in quite practical ways um and immediate things and are many of those around communities and i agree and i mean this i i see this kind of technology Being able to empower a community to say, you know, this is what, you know, to generate content around their shared uh, problem solving in order to be able to connect in with wider politics or society, media, uh, and to draw in from expertise potentially because they're able to generate content to support what they're doing and to articulate their decision making processes locally.
0: When Woe was on, one of the things he said is, you pretty much need to just treat AI like it's just someone in the office. Like it's that guy right at the minute. You know, it, it sometimes it makes up stuff, but yeah. you can ask them questions and you can get help and support. So feeding off of what you were yeah. just saying, do you think then that is AI just going to become another member of society that we're just going to have to kind of deal with like it's a person?
1: Um. I, well, I, I I, don't. I mean, I I characterize it as not the guy in the office I mean I've heard students say it's like having the smart student on permanent uh, uh, you know on WhatsApp permanently um, or, or for me it's the guy in the pub who is great company but yep. tell, makes up stories and you just have to accept that he's going to make up lots of stories but he, he'll, he'll always give you a a good plausible response to whatever you say. But then from then I, you know, no, this is this is no more than an automatic pencil, really. Or a calculator. Or a calculator. You know, it's just another communication tool. You know, it is just a tool. And I think see it that way, it kind of see, it limits this kind of imaginary about this kind of intelligence that's there, you know. And that I think is misleading in how you comprehend how to make use of it in creative ways. So to see it as a kind of very clever, you know, it's like the ultimate. You know, if you take Midjourney and ChatGPT all together, and ultimately with multimedia AI, you know, you effectively you got a, a you know a very clever universal art device. It's like it'll like, yeah. yeah. produce in any media, in any form, in in any genre or anything of this. And all all that's you know you you it's you as the creator decide. What you're going to do with that? What you want it to do? Uh, really? Yeah,
0: it's. I know advertisers are using it. Then they can create things like. In the past, they would create maybe four or five videos that were targeted to different audiences. Now they can create ten thousand. Yeah. And they can, in a matter of minutes. Yeah. And they can target those at very, very specific. Uh, yeah, that's markets right. and save some time and money and this is
1: where I mean you know the, the power of persuasion of, of advertising has been incredible you know it's just another aspect of the media it's been incredible and and increasingly persuasive you know I mean I grew up with the sort of TV advertising and how entertaining that was and how people creative that was but the, the increasing level of per- personalization and targeting requires people to be able to reflect beyond those messages we can't control them we won't be able to control them but we'll be able to say Do you know why this is so persuasive because it's it's aimed at you so don't believe it you know you make the decision you have to make the decision here but don't you know knowing that it's designed to persuade you to buy this doubt you know raise you know issues of trust there you know it's not your friend this is somebody wanting to sell something, and uh, I think that's quite hard because you know, in a fragmented world, people can get very uh, lured in. To uh, I mean, it was the uh, shopping channels. Uh, I, I've you know, I've watched them when they first started, and how persuasive they become, and then entice people in through generating what seemed to be personal dialogue, even if it's you not phoning in, you relate to that person. But this advances that even more in, in a more sophisticated way and how we, can, how we regulate that in a reasonable way. I think it's unreasonable just to say, don't allow it, because that kind of stifles innovation. People have to understand what's happening, and it has to be regulated in a responsible, nuanced way rather than just say, I guess, yeah. but it's not my that's, area that's of regulation. That's going to be the challenge. It is yeah.
0: going, to challenge. going to be the challenge. you going to be the challenge, is understanding what's real and what's not. And I know there are some tools out there at the minute that, you know you can use to try and estimate whether something was written by ai or not but yeah. i'm already getting feedback from authors who are saying that their clients are running it on content that was written three four years ago and it's saying it was written by ai and the tools didn't even exist then
1: yeah I, there is no reliable way because i mean there's a basic you know it's it's basically not copying anything so you have got you've got no reference point you know exactly. it's just it's just a, the most likely next word much in a much more sophisticated assessment of what the meaning is so yeah. um any claim to uh, uh see it and you know i've had people say oh i recognize that from wikipedia and i think you know maybe i've never seen that you know i've never i mean it does nice. have uh, it does repeat stuff irritatingly like it's obsessed with the world. Uh, the word Delve at the moment uh, for me. And, and, uh, and therefore. And, and therefore, and there's other things. So, you know, many of my prompts include, do not use the word delve, delve or multifaceted.
0: Apparently, two of the main ways they can they can figure it out. Um, one is about the density of information. AI writes very dense yeah. material. And that's one way because most people don't write that way. But yeah. any professional writers, any... Anyone that's sort of higher level education, your PhD students, yep. your master's degree students, and things like that, they will write because educational writing is different. Yeah, it is. And So it's you that those rules don't work. But no. another really funny one is is that when you do quotes, AI tends to use straight quotes instead of curly quotes. Okay. And so, so that's one really easy way to identify yeah, yeah, it yeah. if it has straight quotes in it. So I learned that I. Take content very frequently and put it into Grammarly and sort of check everything yeah. to make sure that the, the grammar seems to be okay. And one of the things, if I've used any AI content at all, or I've had it go back and correct my stuff, yeah, it picks up on the difference in the quotes and it will say, "Do you want to use curly quotes or straight?" All words? right, okay, so okay, back the curly quotes. But uh, there you go. There's a topic. Yeah,
1: there. it's it's pretty limit. It's pretty limited. Yeah. Okay.
0: Again, I'm conscious of time. We're we're almost at an hour. Yeah. We could probably talk for a while. We, we could. Hour. It's been like absolutely it's, it's, fascinating
1: because you do ask great questions. And, uh, you know, I realize that, oh, uh, you me. know, I'm, I'm trying to write something longer about, you know, some of these ideas at the moment uh, with the help of uh, ChatGPT at the moment. But, um, of course. So it's really helpful to talk through some of these ideas. And, um, uh, yeah.
0: Well, thanks very much for coming on. Do you have any last words?
1: No, I think we've exhausted ourselves today. So I hope if there's another chance, we can uh, have another conversation.
0: 100%. Steve, thank you very much for coming on the show. And we will speak to you another time. Thank you, David. Bye. Okay, folks, that's a wrap on another amazing episode of Creatives with AI. Thanks so much for joining us today, we really hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. If you want to stay up to date on how all things related to AI is impacting the creative industries, then be sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever your favorite platform is, we're on them all, and follow us on social media, we're on mainly Twitter and LinkedIn, but we're the same handle everywhere which is at with AI. We'd also really appreciate it if you could just take a minute to leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Those are our two main platforms and it really helps other listeners find the show. And it also helps us get more popularity and more exposure. So it'd be amazing if you could help us with that. If you've got any questions, topic suggestions, guest recommendations, feel free to send us an email. The best email is hello at creativeswith.ai or you can shoot us a message on social media, either one is fine. We love hearing from all of you, and we can't wait to bring more exciting episodes in the future, and the best way we can do that is to get feedback from the audience, and have the audience tell us who it is you'd like to hear from, and what things you'd like us to ask, and what topics you'd like us to talk about. So please use that, let us know what you want to hear, and we'll do our best to get it for you. And last but not least, we'd like to give a shout out to our sponsor, Future Hand Limited, who make this podcast possible. Your support means the world to us, and we really appreciate it, so thanks very much. That's it for today, so until next time, take care everybody, and stay curious.